0: For it works, right? Amen. Good deal. All right, we're ready to roll now. Take your Bible, turn over to the book of John. We're going to go into the book of John, chapter 3, to begin with. I want to read one verse today. What's probably the most popular verse in the entire Bible, other than Jesus wept? You know how that is. Every Sunday school kid wants to learn that verse for their memory work, you know? But probably the most popular verse in all the Bible is found in John chapter 3, isn't it? Verse 16. You know, if we all stood today and we all quoted it, I would imagine a lot of you, if not, well, quite a few of you would have almost the whole verse, if not the whole thing memorized. You know, we've heard it many times. We've probably, I don't know if we've even heard it preached that often, but I know we've certainly heard the verse, or we've talked about it in Sunday schools, and Today, I want to focus our attention on John 3.16, something simple. When you think about the promotion that we're kind of entering into, uh, a promotion that emphasizes soul-winning, reaching souls with the gospel of Jesus Christ, I don't know that John 3.16 isn't about as good a verse as you can find. So I want to take just a few moments and talk about John 3.16 today. And so let's go ahead and have a word of prayer, and then we'll take a few moments and do so. Father, we thank you for this time together. It has been a blessing. The music's been an encouragement. I just love listening to the choir. Lord, uh, I just pray that you would just bless and work and move and each life represent it. May your Holy Spirit do a work. May you dig deep into our souls and our hearts and truly point out areas of our life that are lacking. That we might be made complete and whole and full in you. Father, we need you today. And we just commit this service into your hands. We trust you with it. Walk these aisles. Do a miracle in each life. Do what only you can. We will thank you and praise you. And Lord, if there be any that are without Jesus Christ, have never settled their soul salvation, may today be the day. And may they too be able to rejoice and say, thank God I am free. Well, thank you in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> All right. Well, we look over John three sixteen, and the Bible simply says, for God so loved the world That he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. What an amazing passage. What a wonderful passage. I think a passage that sometimes is somewhat overlooked, isn't it? We've said it so many times. We've rehearsed it in our minds so so often that if we're not careful, we lose the significance of it. I think about the writer here. We have the Apostle John. And John, of course, is the writer of the book, but I think it's important to know how John fits in a little bit. When we think about men like Peter and Paul and John, we wonder where do they fit in to the scheme of things. Well, we know that the apostle Peter was the apostle to Israel. And boy, I mean to tell you, when he spoke, he commanded the attention of those Israelites. We understand that Peter was given the keys of the kingdom, though. And when someone says, well, what do you mean the keys of the kingdom? Well, what it was is a key is to unlock something. And what we're going to find is that from Peter to the Apostle Paul, there's going to be a couple of doors that are unlocked that open up salvation to the Gentile. And Peter would be that apostle that would ultimately unlock those doors. We see him in Samaria in chapter 9, and we see, uh, uh, we see uh, should I say, uh, him unlocking the door of salvation, I should say, in, in chapter 10 to the, Is- I'm sorry, I messed that all up, but we see him unlocking a door to the Israelites in chapter 10. Remember Cornelius. We see him there. Not only was he working with the Israelites, but now we see him transitioning and opening a door for the Gentile. So Peter over here is working with the Israelites, and Peter is trying to help them see Christ as Savior and Lord. But then all of a sudden, not only did he unlock that door, but he unlocks the door to the Gentiles as he goes down there to meet with Cornelius. And now, not only do the Jews receive the the filling of the Holy Spirit, not only do they now speak in tongues as an evidence of the, the Holy Spirit indwelling them, but now we see the Gentile doing the same thing. By the way, when you see tongues in the Bible you'll always find a Jew in close proximity. Because the Jew, the Bible says, requires a sign, and tongues are a sign. Jew, the tongues are not given to the Gentile. Tongues are not given to the church. They were given to the Jews, and they were a sign of the authority of the apostles and the, the reality of Christ coming upon them. So Peter, the apostle to Israel, and then we have Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles. As Peter now begins to transition off the scene in chapter 12 of Acts, we now have Paul, the apostle. And he's now going to the Gentiles who Peter unlocked the door of salvation to. And he is going to go out with the gospel of Jesus Christ. According to the book of Corinthians chapter 15, the gospel is the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that is the message that he proclaims and preaches to all men and all women. Boy, I'll tell you, he was not popular because of that message. That message of a resurrected Christ brought great havoc, wreaked great harm to him and those followers of Jesus Christ. But Paul continued, the apostle to the Gentiles, reaching out to what is now the church, And then we come to John, and you say, well, where does John fit in then? I mean, if Peter is the apostle to Israel and Paul's the apostle to the church, where does John fit in? That's a good question. Well, if you really look at John's life, you're going to find that he's used and he, he travels with the Lord Jesus Christ. He is part of that early ministry of the Lord. And we see him writing the book of John that describes and outlines the life of Jesus Christ. But not only that, but we notice in first, second and third John that he addresses Israel and the church. We are going to see that John not only deals with Israel, but he also deals with the church. The fact is is that he's kind of like dealing with both. So when we see the writings of John, we can look at them as the, from the perspective of the church and say, there's things in there that apply to us. There are things there that are appeal, that appeal to us and are part of our Christianity. In John 13, 23, we see see him resting his head on the bosom of Jesus Christ at the Last Supper. He's known as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Wouldn't you like to be known as the disciple that Jesus loved? I mean, wouldn't you like to be in a room full of people and yet rest your head on the bosom of Jesus Christ? And later on, as you write, a book, or you write your notes in your journal, you would say, oh, how he loves me. Now, John doesn't use his name, and nobody, nowhere in his book does it say John is the, the, the apostle whom Jesus loved. But what we find is that John writes in the third person, and he says, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Boy, John felt the love of Christ, and John experienced the love of Christ, and it was real to him. If there's one thing that People struggle with it's the reality of the love of Christ in their life. Oh, they'll say, I know God loves me, the Bible says so, but do you feel like He loves you? There's a big difference from the intellectual assent to the heartfelt confirmation. John is an apostle to both, basically. He ministers to both the Jew and the Gentile. And today we read in the book of John, chapter 3, verse 16, a passage that truly does apply to us and does truly land us where we need to be when he says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. I noticed a couple things in the passage. First, I note the reality the reality. The Bible says, For God so loved the world. That is re- reality. That is truth. That's not just a statement that's made, that is a fact. In first John four eight, the Bible says, He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. The first thing I notice is that we note the character and nature of God in the passage. When the Bible says, for God so loved the world, we are noting his character. We're noting his nature. God is love. Notice it says, and you don't have your Bible, but in 1 John four sixteen, the Bible goes on to say, and we have known and believed the love that God hath to us. God is love. And he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in him. God is not just the master of love, He's not just one that possesses the most love. He is love. He is the personification of love. You say, I'm struggling to love. Then you need to get more of Jesus because he is love. We often complicate these issues so much. But really, the Christian life is much simpler. We are dealing with simply souls. And our theme this year is do the simple well. And when it comes to this relationship that we have with Christ, we must understand that the relationship we have with Christ is not complicated. It's simple. It's a relationship. We must make an investment in it. And he is love. You want to feel love in your life? Then get close to Jesus because he is love. It's not just that he'll show you love. It's not just that he demonstrated love. It's not that he extended love only. He himself is love. So I want to possess as much of him as I can. And in possessing him, I too will express, demonstrate love like I ought to. The character and nature of God is revealed here. But not only that, but the object and focus of his nature is. I mean, think about it. His nature is love then that love now is going to be put upon something, an object. He's going to love something. And that object and focus of his nature then, which is love, is the world, the Bible says. The very thing that hung him on Calvary, the very thing that would ultimately reject him, that's what he loves. God loves us. God loves you, and he loves me, and he loves the world. You say, well, I know he loves me. I try to serve him. I know he loves my family because they try to serve him. No, he loves everyone in the world. By the way, what you create, you love. What you create, you love. And you know what? The Bible tells us in Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heaven and earth. How could he not love it? But not only that, but he created mankind too. Of course, he loves it. He loves us, each and every one. We see the character and nature of God in the passage. For God so loved the world. We note the object and focus of his nature, the world. But then also, we note the unbelievable in this passage to me. The fact that he does love us. The Bible says in Psalm chapter 8, verse 4, What is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visitest him? What is man that thou art mindful of him? I want you to think about the worst thing you've ever done against God. Don't dwell too deeply on it, but think about what you've done. Think about how you potentially have hurt and harmed the Lord Jesus Christ or the God of heaven that created you. Think about how you deviated and how far you went away from Him to think that He would still love. Think about some of the words you may have said to others or some of the things you may have done. But I want you to know today that God is love and because He is love, He loves you. And the fact is, it's an unbelievable reality that He does love us. What is man that thou art mindful of Him? After everything that we do, after everything that we say, after everything that we are, He still loves us. That's unbelievable. The reality. Not only that, I want you to note the response. The reality is for God so loved the world. But note the response that he gave his only begotten son. In the passage we note a gift. Again, he's giving something. He's giving someone. And in Romans 6.23 the Bible says for the wages of sin is death but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. God who loves us now gives us as a result of his love. He gives to us his only begotten son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we know that Jesus was Emmanuel, God with us. That gets a little confusing, doesn't it? But the truth is, is that God was with us in the person of Jesus Christ. A visible representation of the very God that created the universe because Jesus and God are one along with the Holy Spirit. The triune Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, one. These three are one. It says in First John five seven. And we see the response of God, and His great love. Is to send a gift, His only begotten Son, for He hath made Him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. Is that amazing? He allowed his sin to become what the Bible calls propitiation. The propitiation. Literally, Jesus Christ fulfilled the righteous demands of a holy God. Only he could do that. I could never live good enough and I could never be good enough. I can only trust and lean and rest upon the goodness and wonderful perfection of Jesus Christ. He alone met the need that God had or the, the requirement of God for perfection. He lived a perfect, sinless life. And he took my place. He stood in my stead. He hung on Calvary between heaven and earth for me. And he did that for you. The gift. What a tremendous response. So we note the reality We note the response. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Now we come to the requirement that whosoever believeth in him. It is not enough that Jesus Christ came. Your soul salvation is not solely and completely dependent on the fact that God sent Jesus, that he lived a sinless life, that he died, was buried, and rose again. My friend, there is something that is required of each and every person that has ever been created. They must and have to believe. We see the opportunity of faith here, that whosoever, what an opportunity for you and me. By the way, an opportunity for all mankind. Whosoever. You could replace that phrase with my own name, that Mark O'Donnell believeth in him. You could put your name in there. Every human being that's ever been created could replace, put their name in the place of whosoever. My friend, I want you to understand there's a tremendous opportunity of faith. There's an opportunity of salvation that is extended to you and I. An opportunity. An opportunity. And the Spirit and the bride say, come. Let him that heareth say, come. And let him that is athirst come. And whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. Revelation 22, 17. We see the opportunity of faith. We note the necessity of faith. Well, there's an opportunity for us to embrace faith and to hold faith and to experience faith. But there's a necessity of faith. John 3, 3 and 3, 7. Turn there if you would, please. The Lord Jesus is dealing with a man by the name of Nicodemus. A very learned man in the things of the Bible. And notice how he addresses him and how he deals with him in these just two simple verses. He's speaking now of what we would ultimately and will understand to be the new birth. And he says in John chapter 3 verse 3, Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. I want you to know there's a necessity of faith here without that new birth, without that spiritual birth from above. We've all been born physically. We've all been born into a human, from a human object or instrument into this life. And we've been born physically. But you must be born spiritually. There must be the new birth. And that's a transaction and a, 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 a something that takes place by the power and the person of the Holy Spirit. You're born into the family of God. You're placed into the body of Christ. A spiritual birth. Nicodemus struggles and says, well, how can I be born again? Do I have to enter into my mother's womb again and be born? And the Lord says, no, you're misunderstanding spiritual, not physical. Even as you are physically born, you must be spiritually born. We often say one birth, two deaths, two births, one death. You say, what do you mean? One birth, physical birth. You will die physically, but then you will also die spiritually, being cast into the lake of fire, according to Revelation 20, verse 15. But if you are born twice, you will only die once. If you are born in the flesh, but then you are also born in the spirit, you receive and accept Christ. You make make good on God's promises by receiving and accepting His Son. Then you'll have been born the second time spiritually, physical birth, spiritual birth. And guess what? The Bible says you'll never go through the second death. You'll be alive with Christ. See, one birth, two deaths. Two births, one death. But this is a requirement we see the opportunity of faith, the necessity of faith. He goes on to say, Marvel not that I say unto thee, ye must be born again. You have to be born of the Spirit, not just the flesh. There's a necessity of this. You will never make it into the kingdom of God. You will never find yourself in the presence of Christ in the end. You'll never be in a place called heaven. Instead, you'll be in a place called hell if you fail to exercise faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because, see, that brings us to the next one, the object of faith. In Acts chapter 4, verse 12, the Bible says, neither is there salvation any other. For there's none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. Now, I'm going to be honest with you, and I'm not trying to be um, coy or crude or, or offensive in any way, but may I tell you this? If, if somehow you believe that your good life will somehow earn the favor of God and provide you with eternal life, My friend, those good works are no more capable of saving you than this plant that's sitting on this stage now. It is as powerful as this plant is to save my soul. That's as powerful as your works are. You you say, well, uh, I've been born into a family that believes in God and I have a very good spiritual background. My friend, I want you to know that that spiritual background is as effective at saving your soul as that monitor is. You say, but I've been baptized. I I remember being baptized as a young man or maybe a child or whatever. And I want you to know that that baptism in and of itself is no more powerful to save you than this plant up front. The object of your faith must be the same object as my faith is. It must be the same object as everyone's faith is. It is none other than Jesus Christ. Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Amen. Who are you depending on to get you there? What are you depending on to get you there? Again, it's so imperative and so important to understand in this John chapter three sixteen. there is a requirement. For God so loved the world. Thank God for that that he gave his only begotten Son, O God, what is man that thou art mindful, that whosoever believeth in who? Him. Who's the him? It's Jesus Christ. It's not in a pastor. It's not in a prophet. It's not in a priest. It's it's in Jesus Christ. It's not in a church or an edifice. It's not in a building or, or in a business. It's in Jesus Christ. It's not even in just your attitude and your outlook in life. It's Jesus Christ. It's not in your bank account and your benevolence toward others. It's in Jesus Christ. He is the only way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by Him. Finally, we note the result. We see the reality, for God so loved the world, the response That he gave his only begotten son the requirement that whosoever believeth in him. Now we note the result. Should not perish, but have everlasting life. Often when you go through the book of Proverbs, you'll notice this kind of pattern. You'll you'll notice that on this side, there's a statement. On this side, another statement. A comparative statement sometimes, or or a, a this versus this statement. It's kind of funny how he does that. Well, here in this particular case, there's a, a contrast that's taking place. There is, on one hand, perishing. On the other hand, there is life and living. And the truth is, according to the passage, that the result of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ places us in the life column, not the perish column. We are so blessed to be able to say we are not perishing and what creates or causes this element of perishing it's our sin the sin of adam the sin that that was brought about as a result of rebellion in the garden of eden see it's not about you and your sin only it's about the sin you inherited from a corrupt man by the name of adam You are in the likeness and the image of your daddy, and that is Adam. I'm in the image and likeness of my daddy, that is Adam. And someone says, no, we're in the image of God. Read your Bible and you will find out that when Adam fell in the garden, his sons took on his image, his fallen nature. We are in the image of God and that we are tripartite. But we are in the image of Adam that we are only operating in two cylinders of the three. Our spirit is dead unto God. And according to Ephesians chapter 2, the Bible tells us that. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. We're not alive unto God. We are dead unto God until we are born again. The contrast We see, perish versus life. John 10.10 says, The thief cometh not before to steal and to kill and to destroy. I am come that they might have life, that they might have it more abundantly. Life is not found in your job. To be frank with you, it's not found in your family. It's not found in anything that you can work for or obtain in this life. True life. Eternal life is found in only one person, and that's Jesus. He deserves our very best because only He has given His for us. We see the contrast, but note the condemnation. As we read in John chapter 3, turn there, would you please, in verse 16, we're going to read past it. In John chapter 3, verse 16, again, we have this familiar and wonderful passage that we've been addressing already, but notice what he goes on to say here. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world. Aren't you glad about that? You know... I do believe that it's important that we don't go about trying to condemn the world either. Now listen, I'm not saying that we buy into what they're teaching or that we go around trying to uh, obtain and live according to their guidelines, their rules, their prescriptions. No, 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 no. But when we address and deal with sinners, we need to be dealing with people with compassion and love like He did. With the idea of not to condemn, but to somehow convert. To bring them to a knowledge of Jesus Christ. To ultimately put their feet on a firm foundation. To put a new song in their mouth. Even praise unto their God. That many shall see it in fear and trust in the Lord. Jesus himself came, but God sent not. The Bible says he didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. When Jesus returns, it will be for condemnation. When Jesus returns, it will be to put right all the wrongs. But he came the first time. Totally and completely misunderstood by the apostles. To not establish the kingdom, but to establish the cross and that way of salvation that would liberate every lost soul. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Hold on, though. He that believeth on him is not condemned. I'll tell you what, when you put your personal faith and trust in Jesus, you're no longer condemned. By the way, you say condemned? Yes. Have you ever read the Ten Commandments? How do you fare? How do you do against those? And we're talking about not just simply what you did, what you thought. Because God's looking far beyond the exterior. He's looking to the interior. How do we measure up to God's perfect standard or His law, if you will? Let me tell you something. You and I both know and are probably very aware as we look in the mirror that we do not measure up to those Ten Commandments like we ought to. However, let's be honest, because we cannot live those Ten Commandments perfectly, because we cannot keep them in our flesh and in our sinfulness, God sent His Son into the world to die for us, to keep that law, fulfill that law, so that we can put our trust and faith in Him, and He is the one who purchases our salvation for us. But notice, he says, He that believeth on him is not condemned. You don't have to worry about ever spending one moment in hell You don't have to worry about ever spending one moment paying for your own sin if indeed you've trusted and received the Lord and have been born again into the family of God. My friend, there'll be consequences for sin. There'll be even a spanking that God will give you from time to time to bring you closer and back to Him, no doubt in this life. But when you stand before God, He will not bring your sin up and cast you into a devil's hell. That sin has been bought and paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. Because you're no longer condemned. Notice he says, but he that believeth not, however, though, oh my, you don't believe, he says, is condemned already. Sentence has already been passed. You say, but I'm a good person and this is the first time I've ever heard anything like this. You're condemned already. Because you have the sin of Adam within. And that sin of Adam not only is a sin that you bear, but let's face it, with or without that sin, you yourself would be sinning anyway against a holy God. The truth is is that it's only the nature that you are. And that nature will cause you to sin. And the fact is is that God cannot permit sin in His presence. And that sin brings the condemnation of God. And He must punish sin. So therefore... We're condemned already if we do not believe in Jesus Christ. Maybe you're in this room today and here you are listening to this message. There's never been a time, a place when you received and accepted Christ. Oh, you believe there's a God in heaven and you may even believe that Jesus died on the cross and you know that he rose again, but there's never been a time when you personally invited him into your life, recognizing your sin and your need of him and him alone to save and forgive you. My friend, I want you to know you are condemned You will close your eyes in death and you will open them up in a place called hell unless you settle your soul's salvation, unless you face the God of heaven that created all things and come and say, I know I sin against you and I know that I don't deserve heaven. I realize I deserve hell, but I know that you died for me and you paid for my sin. I want Jesus in my life. I want him to forgive me, save me, pay for my sin. You know he'll do that? Because see, we find the contrast here, the condemnation, but we see the hope. Romans 10, 13, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. In John 3, 36, we've already read it. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. The moment I trusted and received Christ and meant business with God, he meant business with me. And the Bible says I received everlasting life from that moment. From the very moment that I came to Calvary and this cross and I fell down before God in humility and said, Lord Jesus, forgive me and save me. You're the only one that can. I need you. From that moment on, from that very moment, I have everlasting life. Now my life may have started here, back here so many years ago, but it has no end now. It's everlasting. I've received everlasting life. And that means it goes on and on and on and on. From the very moment I placed my personal faith and trust in Jesus, the very moment I allowed His blood to be payment for my sin, the moment I allowed Him to stand in my stead. And I invited Him into my life as Savior and trusted Him alone to give me eternal life. He extended that life to me. And it'll go on forever. Someone says, well, what if I you got eternal life. So so yeah, but you can't just... You have what kind? Eternal life. I'm not saying live how you choose. Matter of fact, if you're truly His child, He won't permit that. And there ought to be something in the heart that convicts us of sin. There ought to be something that deals with that. And if not, we're either cold to God or we have never truly met Him. But that life begins at the cross that day when you fall on your knees and humble yourself before Him and you now have everlasting life. The result. What a wonderful result. Because it offers us great hope. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. John 3, John six thirty seven. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. Boy, I'll tell you what, you just got to understand, it doesn't matter where you've been, it doesn't matter what you've done, If you'll come to him, he won't cast you away. He'll receive you. Because he's the one that says, I stand at the door and knock. He's the one that's pursuing you, you not pursuing him. He wouldn't be pursuing you if he didn't want you to receive him. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. Boy, I came to him, and I'll never be cast out. And I trust you've come to him as well. We see the reality. What a reality it is. For God so loved the world. We know the response that he gave his only begotten son. What a wonderful gift and what a wonderful privilege it is to have. Christ extended to each of us. But we note there's a requirement. Before we can receive the Lord, we must believe. For he says that whosoever believeth in him, not believeth in an institution, a person, or anything other than him, he is the only way, the truth, and the life. And we come to the place where ultimately the result, man, it's a great result that we should not perish but have everlasting life. I wonder, do you know that life today? Have you been saved? Do you know for sure heaven's your home? What have you done with John 3, 16 in your own life? It's not enough to know the verse. It's not enough to recognize it in a football game and say, wow, I know that verse. No, it has to have been applied to your life. See, because if we have failed to receive and accept Christ, by faith, believing on Him, then we're condemned already because we were born in condemnation. We will live it and we will die in it. But He will wash away our sin. we will no longer be under condemnation. We'll be free indeed. you like to be free of your sin today. Won't you trust and receive Christ? Maybe you're a child of God already. I wonder, is sin ruling your life? Or is Jesus ruling your life? I mean, we have this wonderful promise in John 3, 16, and we focus on the lost person, the sinner that's without Jesus. But the truth, what about us who have named the name of Christ already? How often do we forget everything he's done and go about doing things our way instead of giving him preeminence in our life as he deserves? God help us as believers to to confess our sins and he will be faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's not dealing with the relationship as much as that's dealing with our fellowship. You're his child the moment you trust him and receive him. and He'll no wise cast you out. But your fellowship is affected by your obedience or disobedience. May God help us as believers to remember John 3, 3, 16 and take it to heart and love him like he loves us. If you love me, keep my commandments. May God help us to walk in his statutes, to obey the Lord. In the book of Psalms, I close with this verse, but it simply says, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. How you doing, believer? May God help us to settle some things today before they settle us. Father, we need you. We come to you asking that your Holy Spirit would work in the lives of these, thy people. That, Father, you would convict us of areas of our life that are weak and in need. That you'd show us the potential for failure and fault and falling. May we address those issues before they ultimately overwhelm us. Father, for the one or two or ten or twenty or multitude that do not have it settled in their heart, their life, where they'll spend eternity, may they settle that today. Lord, you died for them on Calvary. You loved them with all your heart. You paid the awful penalty for sin and you died, was buried and rose again. May they understand their need of Christ and may they settle it today before it's eternally too late. As every head is bowed, every eye is closed, I wonder if anyone in the crowd would say, Preacher, honestly, I must admit, I do not know for sure heaven's my home. I can't say that I have that confidence, that surety, that hope. I'd like to get that settled. I know I need it. I want it. But I don't have it. Would you pray for me, preacher? Pray for me. Anybody? I don't have that settled. I don't have that nailed down. Anybody? All right. What about you then if you claim to know him? Where are you at with him? Where are you at?